Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be looking at chapters 8 and 9. These are six of the seven trumpets. Um, but I, I want to, once again, I want to go uh, uh, through a little bit of a big picture kind of uh, review. Um, as I'm studying the book of Revelation, I'm finding that I don't know as much as I thought I did. And I'm also uh, realizing that it is very helpful for me to try to understand the big picture. And that helps me make sense out of the, the, the complicated details of a lot of the chapters. Which means that uh, even though I, I already was feeling like one week is not enough time to prepare a sermon, uh, with the book of Revelation, I feel even stronger about that because I find myself spending a lot of time really just trying to understand the big, the big picture before I can even dig into the into the details. Um, and the way that we're going through the book has been pretty much like that. We're going, uh, we're trying to understand the big picture and maybe if we preach through Revelation at another time in five, ten years, I don't know, Hopefully, we will have a foundation and something to go uh, to go off of. So, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a big picture of what we've seen so far, and then and then I'm going to read chapters one through nine. So, remember that John is writing this uh, book, this revelation to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and remember that this is written in the form of a letter, in one sense, right? John is addressing it to seven churches. And I think that that's really important for us to understand because with every single book of the Bible, the first thing we want, one of the first things we want to know if we want to understand it is ask the question, who is this written to? And I feel like with the book, of we, we treat all of the other books of the Bible that way. But when we come to Revelation for some reason, we jump that, we, we skip that step and all of a sudden we say, oh, this was written for us, you know, specifically. For us, and this is addressing events that are going to happen either in our lifetime or in the future. But I think it's really important to not skip that step and say, "Who was this written to?" It was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, um, and remember that these churches were experiencing persecution. Remember that John tells them that he is their brother in tribulation, so they were already going through tribulation and persecution, and so. Uh, Jesus delivers this message, this revelation to John so that he can give it to the seven churches. And it's supposed to be a message of encouragement, but it's also supposed to be a warning, right? And, and it's an encouragement if the churches are faithful, right? To the churches that he says, I don't have anything against you. Keep doing what you're doing. This is a message of encouragement, of knowing, wow, like this is what God is going to do. He's going to deliver us from the people that are persecuting us. But if, if you are one of the churches that Christ says, um, you know, I, I'm, it, you're neither hot nor cold, therefore I'm going to uh, spit you out of my mouth, well, then the rest of the book is bad news for you because 
basically, if you do not repent, if you do not heed the call, these are the things that are going to happen to you, right? And also, uh, another theme that we've seen is the theme of conquering, the theme of um, uh, overcoming. To every single one of the seven churches, Jesus gives them a call to overcome, to conquer. And then after we finish that message of, of the situation of the churches, or after we finish that section, now John gives them a, a, uh, a little, it's actually not a little picture, it's a big picture of what things are like in heaven, right? So the churches are suffering, the churches are going through tribulation, but then John shows them this vision about the throne of God in heaven. And, and the purpose of this vision is to show them that even though things look bad for them on earth, the reality is that God is seated on his throne and that he is in sovereign, perfect control of everything that is going on in the world. There is not a single thing that escapes his control and his sovereignty. And then uh, we also see Jesus in, in this vision. And this, the, the point of seeing Jesus is showing how Jesus has already conquered. Jesus, the one who is calling the seven churches to conquer, he is shown as the one who has already conquered. He is the lamb. I, I'm sorry, he is, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the, the of David, who is this military warrior who has conquered. But then remember that distinction between what John sees, or sorry, what John hears and what John sees. And remember that we see, he sees the lamb and he sees him slain. And so the, it, the, the, the message there is that the way that Jesus conquered was by dying on the cross. The way that Jesus conquered was by his sacrificial death. And then we get to the six, I mean, yeah, to the six, to the seven uh, seals, right? Because there is a scroll and, and no one is found worthy to open it except for Jesus. So when, once the seals begin to open, we see a lot of, um, a lot of things happening. And like, and like I said last week, this is the point where most interpreters shake hands and say goodbye to each other, never to meet again until the end of the book. Because this is where you get all sorts of different interpretation. Um, but we see six seals. They're not necessarily the scroll. They are the seals that are holding the scroll close. And these are events that are happening. But some of the things that we see is that God's people are being persecuted. God's people are suffering. In fact, there is it, it, the fifth seal shows that God's people, those who have already died, they are praying. They are asking God, like, how long until until you, you avenge our blood. And they are told to wait a little longer until the number is complete. And then after the sixth seal, uh, uh, there is a, a, an interlude or there is some, some sort of an interruption. And John sees that God's people are being sealed uh, with the seal of God. And, and remember, that it's a parallel to the scene of the lion and the lamb in that it starts with a military census, right? It starts with 144,000, and it seems like this is an army, and it's the army of the lion, right? The, the census begins with the tribe of Judah. But once again, when John sees, instead of seeing an army, he sees a, an innumerable multitude of people 
that have, like the lamb, that have been slain. A multitude of people that are in God's presence, that are in, in, in God's care, and they are the people that have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And so we saw, and, and, and someone actually mentioned to me, we saw something that might even be a little bit discouraging in the sense that we see that the way that the, the church, the saints, conquer is in the same way that their Lord conquered, which was by their sacrificial death. And so I could see how that's a little bit discouraging, right? Of saying like, oh, so you're telling me that, that basically the end for us is that we're all just going to die? And... <laughs> In part, yes, I think in part, that's what John is telling the church. He's telling them, you guys are going to be martyred. You guys are going to die. And, and, and part of the point is, it is through your death that you are rescued from the tribulation, from the suffering that you're going through. But I don't think that that is the only point of, uh, of their death. I don't think that is the only point of their their witness. I think we're, as we progress into the book, we're going to see that there is more to it than just them dying. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Uh, so there, in the book of Revelation, uh, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And this is actually, so far for me, has been one of the most difficult parts of the book of Revelation because there's like a million interpretations of what the relationship between the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are or is. And are they chronologically ordered? Are they logically ordered? Are they all the same, you know, an explanation of the same events, but, you know, one after the other? Or do they come out of the next? You know, there's just so many different interpretations. There's also at least three main views. The first one says that all of these things already happened at the destruction of Jerusalem. The second one says that these things are things that are happening throughout the history of, of the church, throughout this age. And the third view says that all of these things are going to happen in the future after, there is a, after the church is raptured and there is a great tribulation here on earth. Um, so I want to just give you a few of my own observations uh, based on what I've read, based on, based on what I've seen regarding these seals and these uh, trumpets and these uh, bowls. Uh, one of the things that I see is that they, there seems to be a progression. Like, I don't believe that this is just three different ways of describing the same thing. I think that there seems to be a progression. Um, they, they all seem to be moving forward and they seem to be different. They are similar. They are uh, similar in the things that they communicate, but it doesn't look like they are saying the exact same thing. In fact, it appears to me that it's kind of like a, like a telescope in that you have one, two, three, four, five, six, and then at seven, the, the seventh seal telescopes or out of the seventh seal, the next uh, seven trumpets telescope out of it. And then out of the seventh trumpet, the, you know, the seven bowls telescope out of it. And so there seems to be some sort of a, a, a progression where they are coming out of the, the other one. Um, also, I have noticed that some of the things described in these seals and trumpets and bowls seem to be, some of them seem to be very general, like seem to be describing things that are 
just simply happening all the time, like wars and famine and things like that. But I also noted that there are things that are very specific. For example, in the chapter we're going to read today, we see uh, something very specific that is going to happen at a certain day, at a certain hour, you know, at a time that has been established. And it also seems that each one of them has a different, um, a different purpose. So, for example, the seals, uh, to me, they seem to be more circumstantial. They, they seem to be describing things that are happening. Uh, in, in this particular case, like I would actually be on board with the view that, that, um, that they are describing things that happen throughout the history of the church. Right, because it, it talks about uh, you know the the rider of the white horse going and conquering, and like Jordan defended very well. It, it, you know, it's very likely that that is talking about Jesus going and conquering through through the gospel, and then it talks about famine, it talks about war, it talks about suffering, and it seems like those are things that happen throughout the history of of the earth, particularly the history of the church. But then when we get to the trumpets. If you think about it, what is the purpose of a trumpet in, in the Bible? Well, usually it's a warning, right? It's, it's a call to action or, or it's something meant to announce something else. And so the trumpets seem to me to be more of a warning, not the judgment itself. I mean, obviously, they're, they're, they come with a lot of judgment. Like as we're going to read, they come with a lot of people dying, a lot of people suffering, but they seem to be a warning in that they are partial. They are limited. We read often that says, and a third of the trees of the earth were destroyed and a third of the water and a third of this and a third of that. So it seems to be limited. Like it's not destroying everything in the world. It's just destroying a third. And so they seem to be more of a warning but when we get to the bowls, I think that's, that's the real deal. That's when God's wrath is actually poured on those who, after the seals, after the trumpets, continue in unrepentance. And I think that, you know, when we think of bowl in, in biblical terms, oftentimes, you know, the bowl is associated with the wrath of God being poured upon his enemies. Uh, another thing to notice is that when when the seals happen, God's people have not been sealed, right? Have not received received the seal from God, and so again, it seems more circumstantial. It seems something that everyone goes through, not just unbelievers, but believers as well. But when we get to the trumpets, God's people have already been sealed, and God's people are protected from the trumpets. So. Sorry, I know that that was very long and I probably lost many of you, but I'm just trying to like make sense of, of some of these things in my own mind. Uh, so let's read, let's read uh, chapters 8 and 9 and, and go through the seven trumpets or the six trumpets. Revelation 8, starting in verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, 
And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of, of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder rumbling, flashes of lightning and earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew the trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a, tor like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, and it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and found the shaft, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek, will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses running into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, 
release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color, of fire, and of sapphire, and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, of their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is the word of God. You, oh, you are already seated. So, this is an incredibly intense section of scripture, right? Remember the seals, it seems like these were things that were happening throughout or things that have been happening throughout the history of uh, of the earth, the history of the church. I'm actually reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 24, when he tells them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And so this almost seems a little more descriptive of what's going on with the, with the six seals, right? It's things that are happening, wars, earthquakes, nations rising against nations, persecution, tribulation, people suffering. But then remember that in chapter 7, we see that God's people are sealed with his seal. Remember also that one of the seals is God's people praying for God to, for God to avenge their blood because they have been martyred. And so notice how in, in chapter 8, when the, seventh, when the seventh seal is open, it's like the seven trumpets come out of this seal, we see that there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then there's an angel that comes with a, with a golden censer 
that has incense and it has the prayers of all the saints. And so once again, we are in this temple imagery and there's this angel who comes and brings the censer and, and uh, the half an hour of silence, uh, I think that it, it, you know, it resembles how at the temple when people were praying, uh, there would be silence, right? Right before the priest would come and offer the, the sacrifice or offer the incense, there would be silence at the temple and there would be people praying. And so notice in this image of God's throne, God is receiving this offering of his people's prayer. And then what happens? Notice that it is this same golden censer that after it is offered to God, right? So verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So one thing that is amazing uh, about this is how the prayers of the saints affect God's, uh, I should, let me reword it. It's amazing to see how, the, how God uses the prayers of the saints for his sovereign purpose of judging the world. So remember, we have the scene of the, of the martyrs, the saints praying and asking God to avenge them. And then we have an image of these prayers coming up to God and God immediately responding to their prayer. And so I think this is really uh, good for us to remember is that prayer is something that God decides to use for his plan of redemption and for his plan of judgment. And this is really good news because it means that when we pray, God is actually listening. Now, this is like mind-blowing to me because, you know, God is sovereign. He already has a plan. So I, I don't think I would say that our prayers change God's mind per se, but in a, in a way that I don't know how to explain, God has chosen to work through our prayer. God has chosen to do his purposes for this world through the prayer of his people. And so when we pray, it is not in vain when we pray. When we pray for God's deliverance, it is not in vain. He is listening. When we pray for God to avenge his saints, the people that are suffering for his namesake, it is not in vain. He is listening. And once the prayer has come up to him and once this appointed time comes, that same censor that is used to offer the prayers is also used to bring judgment upon the earth. Now, a little note here. Some people have pointed out, well, why is there an angel offering the prayers? Like, isn't that kind of weird? Like, I thought that Jesus was the, the intercessor. And, you know, honestly, I don't see that much of a problem if it were an angel. Like, you know, angels are God's servants. They can, he can use them to do whatever he wants them to do. Um, some people have suggested that this angel might be like a, a representation of Christ. It could be. I'm not, I'm not ready to go there or, or to, to take that, that view. 
one thing that I did read and that I, and that actually caught my attention is notice how in verse 3, it says, Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. The thing that I read is that notice how the incense is mixed with the prayers of the saints. And so uh, this person that I was reading was talking about how the incense is probably uh, a representation of Jesus' interceding prayers for us. And so, you know, I don't know if that, that was the image, but at the same time, I do think that this is true in that our prayers never come to God by themselves, never come to God alone. But rather, Jesus is the one who is interceding for us. Jesus is the one who is praying for us. Jesus is the one that prayed for his disciples in, in, uh, in John 17, I believe. Jesus is the one who is before the throne of God interceding for us. And so that gives us even more confidence, right? In knowing that when we pray, it's not just our prayers going to God, because if it were just, you know, for because of how good our prayers are or how powerful they are, then I don't think they would make it very far. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus is the one who is interceding for us. Jesus is the one who is, uh, you know, whether it be through this angel or, or he himself, he is the one who is bringing these prayers to God. These prayers are being heard and God is acting because of these prayers. God is exercising his plan to redeem the world, to judge the world. He is working through the prayers of his church. So this should be a huge exhortation for us to step up our prayer game, to, to really pray with confidence and know that God is listening to us. So we see the, the um, seven angels, right? Verse six, they have seven trumpets and they prepare to blow them. Now. This is a long section, and I'm not going to uh, even attempt to explain all of the figures and what uh, you know what the star wormwood is and and all of these things. I, if you if you are interested, I can recommend to you some books that that would help you with that. But really, what I want to do is I want to get again the big picture of this passage and see what the point that that uh, this vision is trying to to communicate is. So we see that the first four trumpets affect nature in one way or another, right? We see with the, with the first one, uh, the first angel blew his trumpet, verse 7, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So we see that a third of the earth is affected, a third of the things the, the, the vegetation of the earth is affected. With the second angel, we see something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third uh, of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So we see that the first one affected the earth. We see that the second one affects the sea. And it only makes sense that God, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, the, the God of the sea and, and, the land, and the dry land, he has absolute power and he has ab absolute sovereignty. And if he chooses to 
destroy a third of those, he can do it. No one can tell him. No one can tell him no. Then in verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So now he is also um, using his, his uh, divine arsenal to, to uh, harm the, the water, right? The rivers in land. And then in verse 12, we see the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So we see that in these four trumpets, the earth is affected, the sea is affected, a star falls and the water is within land is affected. And then we see with the, la with the fourth one that the celestial bodies are affected, the planets, the sun, the moon, the stars. And so this reminds me a lot of, and, and it should remind us of the Old Testament and all the Old Testament prophecy, how God makes use of his divine arsenal to accomplish his purpose, right? We recently studied the book of Joel and we a little less recently, but pretty recent still, studied the book of Jonah. And some of the things that really stuck out to me in those books is how God uses his creation to accomplish his purposes, right? In Jonah, he uses this whale, he uses the ocean, he uses the storm, the winds to accomplish his sovereign plan. And then in the book of Joel, he uses the locust and he uses the wildfires and the famine and all of these things to accomplish his purpose. And so I think that we in our Western kind of mentality, we look at nature in a way that is a little too separated from God. We, we are not very quick to think of natural disasters as things that God sent. You know, we just think, oh yeah, you know, it's just the way the earth works because of the fallen nature of the world. It's normal that there are earthquakes and things like that. Well, no. God is in perfect control of his creation. God is sovereign and he can make use of his arsenal of creation to accomplish his purpose. To accomplish his will. And like I was mentioning before, the, I believe that the purpose of these trumpets is to warn people regarding the coming judgment. Notice that all of these trumpets have uh, judgments that are partial, right? It's only a third of the earth that is affected. It's only a third of the sea that is affected. It's only a third of the rivers. It's only a third of the, um, of the celestial bodies. In other words, it's almost like a foretaste of what is going to happen to those that continue in unrepentance. And so God is, is making this huge display of power so that people can see that he is God, so that people can see that he is in control, and so that people can be warned about what is going to happen if they continue in unrepentance. So whenever we see events like that happening, whenever we see earthquakes, whenever we see Uh, disaster, tragedy, uh, floods, fires, etc. We should not think of them as, you know, random events of mother nature. 
Rather, we should think of them as warnings from God. We should think of them as, in a sense, as God's mercy, right? Because what is a warning but mercy, right? A, a, a warning, these trumpets are a display of God's mercy. One could say, what do you mean? Like a third of humanity is killed. Well, God is warning people to come to repentance before it's not just a third, but it's every single person who continues in rebellion against God. Then we see that after he uses this um, arsenal from nature, from his creation, then things escalate. And now we see some demonic activity, right? With the next two trumpets. And, and I'm not going to reread all of them, but we have both these. Well, first of all, it says that there is a star that uh, chapter 9, verse 1, after the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So this is very likely an illusion of Satan falling from heaven, right? Remember that Jesus actually prophesies and he says, I saw Satan fall, falling from heaven like lightning. And so this seems to be Satan being sent down here on earth as a punishment, but he is also given certain authority. He is also given certain uh, uh, ability to do things. And he is given the authority to release all of these demons from the bottomless pit. And they come and they are tormenting people. But again, notice that their reach is limited. Notice that they only torment people for five months. Notice that they do not kill every single, or, or they do not torment everyone. They only torment those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And so then we see... Uh, um, in verse 13, the sixth angel blows his trumpet, and, um, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who has the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So notice this, again, some people have suggested that these angels are actually not good angels, but evil angels that are released to go and destroy. But I believe that one of the, or, or one of the principles that I, want to, that I want us to see here is how God works even through demonic activity. Right? Make no mistake, God is not guilty of any sin. Right? God is not evil, but he allows demonic activity. He allows Satan to have a certain limited power, a certain limited control. And in his sovereignty, he is still working out his purposes for humanity, even through this demonic activity. I think of uh, the book of Job, right? How Satan is given permission to go and and, and touch Job's properties and his family and even his flesh. And it's not like things have gone out of God's control. God is still in perfect control. But he, even in his control, he allows 
demonic activity to happen. And he uses it for his glory and he uses it for his purpose. In this case, the purpose of, of the seven trumpets is to bring warning and judgment against God's enemies. Also, a, a detail that I pointed out before in verse 15, it seems like this is a very specific time, right? To, uh, uh, there are multiple people that say, well, this is just you know, things that are going to happen throughout the history of the church. You know, I could see that for some of them, but at least for the sixth trumpet, it seems like it's a very specific, you know, the hour, the day, the month, the year. It's, it's something that has been reserved for a very specific time. So verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads and many means, and by means of them they wound. What would you expect people to do after a third of humanity has died, after all of these things have happened? What would be a, a sensible response? You would think that after hearing these six trumpets of warning, people would repent. And yet we see in verse 20 that no one repented. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, of their sexual immorality, or their thefts. What is wrong with humanity? After, after having all of these signs, all of these warnings, why do people continue in unrepentance? And I think as we progress into the book, we are going to see that judgment alone does not bring repentance. That's why the, the, the seven trumpets are interrupted and then uh, John opens the little scroll and the scroll finally reveals the two witnesses. And it is not until the two witnesses die and then they rise again that people actually give glory to God. Because I believe that judgment will not bring repentance. There has to be a witness. There has to be a proclamation. People see the things that are happening in the world, and a lot of them continue to rebel against God. People see the, the turmoil that, go, that has been going on in this world for ages. And people just brush it up. And they do not repent because of their sin against God. And that's why I think it is so important, so necessary that we, the church, that we would be those witnesses. That we would be the ones to proclaim the word of God. That we would be the ones to point to the evidence and say, look, all of these things that are happening. 
Do you think they're happening by accident or by accident or coincidence? No, God is in control. And he is allowing these things and he is making a display of his power to show you what awaits you if you do not repent of your sin. And I, I want to finish with two, two exhortations for us. One of them is, you know, when we look at these people, I think it's easy for us to say like, man, these people are just dumb. You know, they're fools. Like, how, how would they not repent after all of this? But I think we need to look at ourselves and say, why do we continue on the same sin? Why do we continue falling and sinning against God? Why haven't we ridden ourselves of our, our own idols? Right? It sounds really dumb here, right? These idols made of wood and gold and bronze and stone. They cannot see. They cannot hear. They cannot walk. But what about our own idols? Idols might not be made of these materials, but they're idols nonetheless. And like the Word of God says, those who worship these idols become like them. These idols cannot see. When we worship them, we become blind. They cannot hear. When we worship them, we are deaf to God's Word, to God's uh, warnings. And so... the. Again, the first exhortation is, do not harden your heart. Remember that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not mock God's grace. Do not mock his patience. Repent of your sins. He has given you many warnings. Do not continue to harden your heart, but repent of your sin. And the second exhortation is, you know, like I was talking about how judgment alone and and warning alone does not bring repentance, but there has to be witness. There has to be proclamation. The second exhortation is bearing witness Let's bear witness to the mercy of God, to the impending judgment, to the good news of his gospel. We need to proclaim the good news of the gospel. We need to be vocal about the word of God, about the gospel, about the judgment that is coming upon those who continue in unrepentance. If we do not go and witness, people are on their way to destruction. People are on their way to taking on the full bowl of God's wrath upon them. And, you know, I I think we should definitely preach about judgment and about the things that are, you know, about hell and and the book of Revelation, and, and all of these plagues. But I think we also need to remember that these warnings are 
God's mercy. We need to remember that the fact that God is warning people with seals and with trumpets before the bowls come, that means that he is such a patient God. The fact that it has been over 2,000 years since the time that Jesus ascended or about 2,000 years means that he is merciful, that he is patient, that he is waiting for more people to repent. I can't remember if it's Timothy or Titus or might be something completely different, but it says that God wants all people to be saved. And so we need to go about preaching about the mercy of God. We need to go about proclaiming and saying, look, all of these things that are happening is God sending warning signs, warning trumpets so that you would repent, so that you would turn to him. And that gives us the opportunity to talk about how the Lord Jesus, he took God's wrath upon himself. Remember the the closing question of of the sixth seal? Who can stand before the wrath of the one seated on the throne and of the Lamb? And what was the response to that? It was those who had received the seal of God. And so when we talk about the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb, we also need to talk about the seal of God. We need to talk about how God already took care of the problem how he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to drink the full cup of God's wrath on our behalf so that anyone that would come to him, so anyone that would repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus would be saved and would receive the seal of God and would not have to endure the wrath of God. That is the gospel. That is the good news that we have to proclaim to those who are lost. Don't get me wrong, when we say God loves you, yes, amen, God loves you. But that's not a a full explanation of the gospel. If we just say God loves you, people would say, well, what do you mean God loves me? Look at all the things that are happening. Look at this pandemic. Look at the earthquakes and wars and everything that goes on. What do you mean God loves me? But if we present it from this perspective and say, no, he loves you. He is sending all of these things to warn you against his judgment. But he has already taken care of the problem by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross and to drink his wrath so that you don't have to endure his wrath. So that you can stand before him. So that you can be in his presence protected by him. That is the good news of the gospel. And that is what we have to proclaim. And that's what we proclaim every Sunday when we uh, take communion, when we drink of the cup, we are remembering the blood of Jesus, the price that was paid for our redemption. When we eat of the bread, we are remembering his body that was crushed for us. We are remembering how he took God's wrath upon himself, upon his body. So let's take time to do that, to remember the good news of the gospel, to remember the mercy of God.